Let's open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. We're looking again in the, the opening part of this chapter, 1 John, uh, the first chapter. And this is just a convincing, really powerful little letter. I've told you that John just jumps right into the subject matter here with little, little fanfare. He drives just right to the point with urgency. And this is because he saw error that was creeping into the church. And rather to wait and accommodate any of that, he knew that above all, he had to rid the church of this error because it would attack the foundation or was attacking the foundation of the faith. John is one of those people who's not concerned about unity at all costs. And that's one thing we see going on in churches today, that there's just a hodgepodge of doctrine and people can all mix it all up and it really doesn't matter anymore. And so they say unity, that's the thing. We have to have that. But we can never have unity at the expense of truth. Truth is the basis for our fellowship with one another and our fellowship with God. And it doesn't matter what else you do. You can't be a Christian unless you have truth. Christianity is Christ. And John has already written in the Gospel of John, in that first chapter, he said that Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. And so, if you're trying to get to Christ on any other basis, or get to God the Father on any other basis than the truth, then you're, you're going the wrong way. Truth is the basis of fellowship. And if it is, then truth will differentiate between false Christians and true ones. And in this little letter, John is very concerned about separating out who are true Christians and who are the false ones. And so he proposes tests that can be used to determine whether a person really knows the Lord or not. Now, John uh, felt it his duty to protect the church. And before you can, you can do that. Uh, I mean, you have to, when you root out this thing about truth and, and, and error... You have to determine who are the people that are lying and who are the people that are telling the truth. Now, a few weeks ago, we were looking at the opening three verses, and we saw there that one way that you could tell a false Christian from a true one is what that person believes about the incarnation of Christ. And that's just one of the doctrines that you could look at. And so the question is, did Christ come in the flesh or did he not? Uh, Do we need to believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ? Is that really a necessity? So, or is the virgin birth, is that an important doctrine? So these are all very important questions. And if you're not right on those doctrines, if you don't understand those correctly, then you'll never be able to understand the importance of what Christ did on the cross. So John's focus in this letter is to deal with the heresy of Gnosticism that had infiltrated the church. And those tentacles of Gnosticism were reaching into uh, the church there that he's writing to. And they were affecting the foundational principles that John was trying to teach. And so he refutes what they had to say. And we notice here that the basis that he refutes, the way that he does that does this is to first look at objective truth. And when I speak of objective truth, I mean things that John had actually seen, things that he heard, things that he touched. That's what he said in those first three verses about the humanity of Christ. He said, we know him because we've heard him, we touched him, we saw him. But then he moves beyond that and he goes in uh, other parts of the letter and he'll talk about doctrinal truths and things that have been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. So the first three verses of the chapter deal with John's knowledge of Christ's humanity, what he saw, what he heard, what he touched. And the physical body of Christ, the fact that Christ did come in the flesh, was proof that the body itself, the flesh, is not inherently sinful, but sin comes from some other source. And so as we go on into the next part of this, uh, John deals with sin. 
The Gnostics had separated the material man from the spiritual man, and they taught that sin comes from the material body, has no effect on the spiritual man. And so, if it doesn't affect the spirit, their thought was, well, it's all material, the body's going to die anyway, so it really doesn't matter what you do, your spiritual man is not going to be affected by it. So John then progresses with his arguments in the first chapter dealing with sin. What does sin mean to the natural man? What does it mean to the Christian? Can you live in sin and can you have fellowship with God? Is that possible to do? And these are questions that he answers here in this first chapter. So let's look at this. First John chapter 1, and I'll just leave you seated there. Let's look at verse number 5. We'll start with this. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, you'll notice there in those few verses that we read that the most prominent word throughout the section is the word sin. In most Christian circles, or what we would call Christian, people are not going to be confused like the Gnostics were over this thing of the material body and the spiritual man and how it's related to sin. We're not going to fall into that error most likely. New Age groups are still perpetuating that today. But for most what we would call Orthodox Christians, they're, they're not really into that kind of an error. But it doesn't stop people from misunderstanding how sin reflect, uh, affects their relationship with God. And it's not uncommon for us uh, to speak with people who claim that they do have a connection with God. They tell us that they are spiritual people. They say they fellowship with God. They believe that they can actually maintain a relationship with God. They can pray to Him and they think everything is fine. But they haven't yet dealt with the question of sin. And they have no need, they think, to go to the cross. There's no need to repent of sin. There's no need of faith. They don't even really understand that this is what it takes to cure the sin problem. And when we get down to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, John makes it clear to us that Christ's work is the answer to the sin question. And it's Christ's satisfaction to God that enables us to actually have fellowship with God. And so whenever you speak to someone who has no idea at all what the new birth is, they don't know what it means to be born again, then they really don't understand the seriousness of sin. And they don't really understand the personal sacrifice that Christ has made to take sin away. So sin has to be dealt with. And that's one of the reasons why we say that when you're talking to someone about the Lord and you're giving them a gospel presentation, you have to get them lost before you can get them saved. And most people don't think they're even lost. So you have to show them that they are lost. You have to show them the awfulness of their sin. They have offended a holy God. And God is not tolerant of sin even in the slightest degree. And if you look in, again at verse number 5 that we spent some time on with last week, that is actually the thrust of John's statement. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And there he's, when he says God is light, he's primarily talking about God's holiness. Sin 
uh, the darkness of uh, darkness rather is representative of sin and God is thoroughly holy there is no darkness in him Darkness and light can't go together. They don't exist together. You don't put them together. Darkness and light can't be in the same place at the same time. And the whole point of this is neither can you have a holy God who can countenance sin. Then in verse number 6 he says that if anyone walks in darkness, who, which means living in sin, and at the same time he claims that he has fellowship with God, then that person is a liar. What does that mean? Well, of course, it means that he's not a person of truth. And we've already seen truth is the basis of fellowship. And the only truth is God's truth. And John explains God's truth as it relates to sin. So we're going to look at this. Uh, The subject of sin is going to occupy us for a little while. And we're going to see here the true biblical perspective of sin according to the Apostle John. Now, first we want to look at sin in relation to conduct. Verse number 6 says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now there we see a word that is so common throughout the New Testament. It's the word walk. Paul used that over and over again. We've been over this. John uses it here. Paul speaks of her walk. He says, walk in newness of life. Walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Walk honestly. Walk by faith and not by sight. Walk worthy. Walk as children of the light. On and on he goes. It's a common word for the apostle Paul. And walk refers to a person's conduct. Here John also speaks of walking. And he says, if you walk in darkness and you claim to have fellowship with God, then you are a liar. And so what he's telling us here is that right conduct determines fellowship. Right conduct is a means of differentiating between those that are true and those that are false. And this is why the Bible speaks so much about lifestyle, about conduct. And if you want to get down to the things that you wear and the places you go and the people that you're friends with, it all figures into your conduct about whether you are truly a child of God. Now, let's look at two ways that conduct is a determiner. First of all, our conduct is a demonstration of our position. Now, the Gnostics claimed that they had fellowship with God, and at the same time, they were living sinful lifestyles. Now, this is a peculiar thing, because at the same time, they claimed that they had reached this this higher spiritual level of understanding. They were on a plane of fellowship with God that ordinary Christians never reach, and yet they were living in sin. Now, if this is so, what John is telling us, then what they would have to do is to look at God's chief attribute, which is holiness. And they would see that if they have reached higher fellowship with God, it would at the same time a necessity mean that they must be living a less sinful life than others, not a more sinful life. Now, in the Old Testament, we know that God very clearly declares his holiness. And I think one of the most vivid pictures that we have as instructions that were given to Moses concerning the garments of the high priest. Now, I'm going to warn you something. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking back into the Old Testament on a lot of these issues because they're Old Testament types and figures, especially in the tabernacle, that teach us a great deal about what John gets into here. But in Exodus chapter uh, 28, here there's a discussion about the garments of the high priest. And here in particular, the mitre, the, 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 the plate, golden plate that went on the mitre, the high priest on what we call his hat. It says, And thou shalt make a plate of pure gold, and grave upon it, like the engravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord. 
And thou shalt put it on blue lace, that it may be upon the mitre, upon the forefront of the mitre it shall be. And it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of holy things, which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall be always upon his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. This golden plate that Aaron wore on the mitre was a constant reminder, reminder that God is holy. And in order for us to come into his presence, we also have to be holy. Now, on the positive side of that, uh, an indicator of our holiness then would be our conduct. It, it demonstrates that we do respect God's law. It says that we do understand that God has a standard, and that standard is always to be strived for. Now, in verse 38 of that text, it says, It shall be upon Aaron's forehead. And then this little addendum that it puts on there seems a little bit peculiar. It shall be upon Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of holy things. What does that mean? Well, it means that there was always this recognition that the very best that we can do as humans is always tainted with sin. Our righteousness is always imperfect, even the very best of our efforts. And of course, that would correspond exactly to what John says in verse number 8. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, what the priest would do is he would obey God by bringing the sacrifice. He atoned for the sins of the people by the offering, by a blood offering. And we see in verse number 7, it says that Christ's blood is what cleanses us from sin. It's the blood of Christ that allows our continual fellowship. And if there is no change of conduct, then that would indicate that there is no cleansing from sin. And if there is no cleansing, we can't be identified as God's people. And so to show this flock, of people that, that John's writing to, that he's pastoring here, to try to show them who the false Christians are, where does he go? Well, he goes to their conduct. How do they live? Do they take sin seriously? And the failure to take sin seriously is a dead giveaway. Jesus told us that we are to look at the fruit of people's lives. You can tell what position they're in by their fruit. In Matthew 7, he said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And the context of that is Jesus speaking about false teachers. They claim to know him, but if the fruit of their lives says otherwise, then you don't listen to them. Now, John's point is that God is light, God is holy, and if the fruit of those who claim to have fellowship with God is not holiness then they can't be in fellowship with God. They have no position with him. So therefore, reject their teachings. Now let me state it to you in another way. Uh, this is also a demonstration of our pattern. Uh, conduct is also a demonstration of pattern. Now if John is preaching against sinful lifestyles, and yet we are admittedly sinners, then wouldn't that prove that unless we live without sin, then we're false instead of true? So how can we make any kind of allowance at all for sin? And that's the thrust of verse number 8. Some say that they could constantly live in sin and had fellowship with God. That's in verse number 6. But then in verse number 8, there are some who say they have no sin at all. It's an error to say that you can sin and have fellowship with God. But it's also an error to say that you have no sin. And therefore, you have fellowship with God. So how are we going to reconcile that? That seems to be a problem. Well, we notice here that in the language that John uses, he didn't, John didn't intend for us to think that walking in the light would mean that we can never sin. 
And that's obvious in verse number 7. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. Cleanse is present tense, and that means that the cleansing is taking place right now. There's never any total eradication of sin in our, in our lives, and it won't be until we get rid of the body. So if we say that, then it seems that John is falling right into the hands of the Gnostics because this is what they claim. They said, well, the problem is your body. Sin is in your body. Get rid of the body, and therefore you have no sin. Well, what we have to understand about this is that the sin nature is not actually a part of the physical flesh. The sin nature is in the soul of man. It's in his will, it's in his mind, it's in our thought processes. And so when you see in the Bible that it talks about sinful flesh, it's actually referring to the nature and not skin cells and corpuscles. Now, we know that we still sin. We know that Christ's blood does more than cleanses from our past sins. The blood of Christ is always efficacious on a daily basis to keep washing sin away. And so, if I sin then... What is it that makes me different from a false Christian who also sins? I'm a Christian who sins. Somebody who says they're a Christian, a false Christian, and they sin. What's the difference between me and them? Well, the first part about position concerns holiness. And the second part of the pattern concerns our habits. If the habit of your life is to go on sinning, if your conduct is to habitually sin, then you've not been born of God. Now, in the third chapter, uh, John makes some statements that would terribly confuse people if you haven't taken into consideration what he's already said in chapter 1. Now, if you look over in the third chapter, we're going to start reading here at verse number 4. First John 3, verse number 4. He says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Now that's a tough statement right there. If you abide in Christ, then you don't sin. And if you do sin, then you don't know Christ. Now we're having trouble with that. But he goes on, verse 7, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Now what could he mean by this? Well, you have to balance out what's said here with chapter 1. He can't mean that we would never sin, because then that would directly refute what he says in chapter 1. He's already addressed that heresy. Verse number 8, he says, if somebody says they haven't sinned, then they've deceived themselves. So the only way that we could make sense of this is that John has to be speaking about habitual sin. If you practice sinning, if the conduct of your life follows a pattern of sin, then you're not born of God. So one of the identifiers that differentiates between the false and the true is the way that you live. And so if someone says, I have fellowship with God, and the lifestyle says otherwise, you go with their conduct. You don't go with their words. Now, let me take you back here to the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to show you something uh, about how it condemning it would be for a Gnostic to say, I'm a Christian, 
and claimed that he had reached superior knowledge and fellowship with God, and yet he did not demonstrate it with his life. This is in Matthew 7, and uh, this just shows you how often our studies run on parallel tracks. Uh, this coming week, I'll be, or two weeks, I'd rather, I'll go back to the message on critical hypocrites from Matthew 7, 1 through 6. And this is part of that. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Now from there, Jesus goes on and speaks about trying to remove a speck out of your brother's eye, the mote that's in his eye, while you have a two before in your own eye. And the point that I want to make from this is that God will double, triple, and quadruple the judgment against you if you say that you're righteous and then you live like the devil every day. The judgment will come back on you. So the Gnostics then heaped condemnation on themselves from every conceivable angle. Their conduct is not insignificant. Their view of sin is not harmless because not only did it hurt true believers, but it also drove a a spike deeper and deeper into their own hearts. So that's sin in relation to conduct. How you live demonstrates where you stand with God. Is your position one of holiness that reflects the life of Christ that's in you? And do your habits show a pattern of belief? Or are you just a phony who makes the claims, but it's not true? Now, secondly, I want to look at sin in relation to character. Now, here I want to speak more about sin in you personally, what it does to you personally. The first part is how it shows what you are to other people. But in this part, we're going to deal with the doctrine of sin to us personally. Now, we notice first that sin actually demonstrates our nature. Once again, verse number 10, John says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. According to John, sin is always with us. Now, there's a difference between what John means by sin in verse number 9 and in verse number 10. In verse number 10, sin refers to our nature, and in verse number 9, we have it in the plural, sins plural, and uh, this refers to the individual sins that we commit. Now, the difference is noteworthy because we can say sins in verse 9 would be like writing down a list of all the individual things that you did wrong. So you would say, well, I was angry at someone. I was unkind to someone. I cheated on my taxes. I cursed. I took a puff on a joint. All of those are sins. So that's the catalog. Well, you, you all act like you know what I'm talking about there. It's the catalog of your transgression. So that's verse number 9. But verse number 10 does not refer to the actual transgressions. This is about the nature that produces those transgressions. And this is a very important point. Because if you get mixed up about the inherent sin nature, then you're going to be mixed up about your ability or inability to overcome it. Now, the presence of the sin nature helps us to understand, really, the salient point of the virgin birth. This this is the whole point of it. The avoidance of the sin nature is why that Christ had to be born of a virgin. So sin sin demonstrates our nature. We sin because we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. Now the difference in that is that we didn't become sinners when we first sinned. We first sinned because we were sinners. Make that distinction in your mind. So where does sin come from? Well, Romans 5 gives us the answer, or the sin nature, I should say. 
So we're going to turn to Romans chapter 5, if you would. Now we're going to read a few verses here. Uh, It's best for you, I think, to read this whole chapter at a later time. But I'm going to pick out a few verses here, and then we're going to explain them as we go along. Romans chapter 5, we're going to start with verse number 12. Romans 5, 12. We're talking about the sin nature. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now there, Paul says, by one man sin entered into the world. Now that man we know is Adam. And when Adam sinned in the garden, his disobedience brought sin into the world. Death also came by Adam, and because of Adam's sin, death passed upon all men. Now what that shows us is that what Adam did had an effect on more than just Adam. Adam's sin ruined his perfect nature, so that when Adam had children... His nature became their nature. Now, in fact, if you go on and you read Genesis chapter 4, you find that the immediate effect of Adam's nature showed up in his children. Cain was disobedient to the Lord, and his disobedience blossomed into anger, to hatred, and then to murder. And before Adam died, Abel died. Now, I think that's an interesting point because Adam got to see the horrible effects of his sin what his disobedience to God actually did. The effect of it was that man died spiritually and physically, and Adam actually got to see that even before he died. That sin nature passed on to Cain and Abel, and so they were dead spiritually without God, and then Cain slew his brother Abel, and so physical death was there. That's the first death that we have in Scripture of a human being. Now, we go on in verse number 13 in Romans 5. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Now, here is more proof that the sin nature is passed along from generation to generation. People still died, One generation fading into the next even before the law was given. And this is stated so that we'll know that it's not the law that actually made us sinners. We don't become sinners by breaking the law. And that's why it says that death reigned from Adam to Moses because what made us sinners was the underlying sin nature that's in us. Now verse 15 says, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more... The grace, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Now here again, the sin nature is brought out by this statement, through the offense of one, many be dead. So Adam's nature then is being perpetuated. So that when Paul writes this, every person that had died did so because of that sin nature. And every person that was then living and ever would live would also be affected by it. Now, verse 16, And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, The free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Now there we see that Adam's sin nature caused all people to be judged and condemned in sin. 
So every person in the world comes into the world as a condemned sinner just by virtue of his nature. And every person will prove his nature because without exception, all people sin. Now, one thing I want us to notice here before we move on, maybe a couple of things. Um, I've only given you one side of what Paul is discussing here. What we're dealing with is the imputation of Adam's sin to all of his posterity. Adam is the head of the entire human race. And sometimes we call that Adam's federal headship over the human race. So Adam then stands as the representative man. And what that means is that if we had been in the same place where Adam was, that we would have done exactly as Adam did. Now we thank God for this. That's only one side of Paul's argument. Because the other side of it concerns the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And Christ stands as the federal head or the representative of another race. And that's the race of believers. And so, as Adam passed death to all men by his sin, Christ counteracts that sin nature by providing righteousness through justification and by his obedience. Now, that's expressed in verse number 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. I was looking over that scripture a little bit this afternoon, and I was thinking about the um, ordination service that Lino and I went to a few weeks ago. And um, the young man that was being ordained was defending his doctrinal positions, which is what you do in a, with an ordination council. The person gets asked all kinds of questions from all, about all different kinds of, of doctrine. So he presents to you his doctrinal statement and explains what he believes on many, many different doctrines. One of the things that he said in his doctrinal statement was that he really didn't put too much, I don't know exactly how he phrased it, but sort of I didn't put too much stock on uh, concerning the uh, attributes of God, whether his attributes are communicable or incommunicable, that it really was an important point, or it just didn't seem to think so. Well, that raised kind of a flag, red flag in my mind. And so I asked him, I said, well, if God's, if the attributes of God, it's not important whether they're communicable or incommunicable, then what happens with the righteousness that, by which we're saved? Where do we get that righteousness? And what I was trying to get out of him was to tell me whose righteousness we receive. Well, he said it's an alien righteousness, which is true. That means that it, it's without us. It's outside of us. And my point was that what God can't do is that God cannot give us his inherent righteousness. And this verse is, explains that to us because it tells us where our righteousness comes from. It says, So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So God's inherent righteousness is what you would call an incommunicable attribute. That means he can't give it to people. You can't get it from him. So in order to be saved, you have to have a righteousness that comes in a different way. Your own righteousness doesn't work. And so the righteousness that we receive is what comes through Christ's obedience. And that's what's imputed to us. Christ came into the world. He kept the law perfectly. And, and through that perfect life and keeping God's law perfectly, that's the righteousness, earned righteousness, that Christ transfers to us. And so that's why when God sees us, he sees no sin upon us because we have the perfect righteousness of Christ. Now, as far as being justified, that's true. There is no sin upon us because we have the righteousness of Christ. Now, I've said all of this to show you that anyone who says, as it does here in verse 10, we have not sinned. We don't have a sin nature, therefore we don't sin. That's what John is talking about when he says that person is a liar. 
Now, because the sin nature is there, we still do sin. Now, that brings me to the place I want to stop tonight. And this last one is that this, this demonstrates our need. The this, this sin nature actually demonstrates our need. Now, because we have the sin nature that's always with us, we have the need of cleansing. All throughout our life, we had the need of cleansing. Now, we're going to talk more specifically about this when we get to verse number 9 in another message. But verse number 9 confuses a lot of people because it's not talking about justification for salvation. Verse number 9 is speaking of the cleansing that we have for our daily walk. This is our progressive sanctification. And what we need, according to verse number 9, is not denial that we have sinned, but we must have confession that we have sinned. Now, the word confession needs to be explained, and it is explained if you just look at the underlying Greek word. Uh, the word there is homologio. Uh, homologio means the same thing. It's like you have homogenous. That means the same kind or of the same nature. The word confess means that we say the same thing about sin that God says about sin. In other words, we agree. Our sins offend God's, offends God's holiness, and so therefore our sins have to be getting, gotten rid of. So rather than be like the Gnostics who denied that they sinned, we have to agree that we have sinned. And so we confess. We agree with God. We have sinned. Therefore, we need to be cleansed. Now, you see, if you were like the heretics like that John is refuting... You would never confess because you never thought that you needed to. I mean, if you don't have any sin, then what is there any reason to confess your sins? And this is why John has to straighten the doctrine out. Because if these Christians are confused about when they think, well, we don't really need to confess because we don't have any sin, then what happens? Well, it feeds right back up to fellowship. You can't have fellowship with God if you don't confess your sin. So that sin has to be covered. It has to be taken care of. And if we're not if we're not cleansed of our sins, then we can never have fellowship with God. Sin is always a barrier. God does not bridge the barrier between himself and man. He doesn't just step over sin. He obliterates sin. He has to get rid of it. So you can't live with it. Now, the root of it then is our character. We have a sin nature that needs to be cleansed. And so we have to take the advice of John. We identify the false by their conduct. We stay away from them. We have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, and we walk in the light as he is in the light. And if we do, we have fellowship with God and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So sin, the sin question, is a very important one. We're going to come back and talk about it some more next week and see a little bit more that we can learn from this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've been able to look into your word tonight. And Lord, what a marvelous book that we have before us. Uh, gets right down to the, to the most important points that we need to see. And we're just thankful, Lord, that, that John laid this out for us and made it so clear to us that if we're going to have fellowship with you, we have to have something done with the sin problem in our lives. Lord, I pray that our people, having been justified by their, from their sins, through faith in Christ, would now live holy and righteous lives so that every day we maintain the fellowship that we need to have. Make us a holy church, a holy body. And we know, Lord, that we'll see people saved. We'll see people coming to you because the holiness of our lives is the attraction. And you're not going to bless us. You're not going to have fellowship with us unless we have that holiness. So help us to do this, Lord. Bless, as we sing tonight, bless our people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.